Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Here and There podcast. We're back after a short summer slash baby break. Karolina, how was your break? How are you feeling? Hi, Agnieszka. I'm doing very well. Apologies, everyone, for the delay. I take full responsibility for this. Have you been sleeping? Have you been eating? I have been doing both of these things, perhaps in smaller doses, but that's all good. And I'm just whispering a little bit right now because my baby is sleeping, sleeping next to me. Um, and I'm not sure where that's going to go. Oh, bless him. Have you been enjoying the first few weeks? Yeah, I think I, I have. Yeah, I tell everyone it's kind of easier than what I was told. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm kind of lying to myself. So I haven't decided on that one yet. Oh, you know, I enjoy that attitude. <laughs> I know. Yes, maybe that's what it is. Maybe I'm just trying to please you. Full endorsement here. <laughs> Um, no, but it's been great so far. Yeah, I think I've been just lucky so far. Maybe maybe let's stick to that. It's a big, big change. And um, we're talking to Safir today about some big changes and about missing some of the people that are close to us during those big moments. She mentions her grandma passing away. I think births and deaths are kind of like the core moments where we feel especially strongly when we don't have you know, the people that are close to us or maybe when we're away. Have you been feeling, you know, have you been missing your family more than normally during that period? I was wondering about that. Yeah, I think so. I think it's that it feels like I'm trying to adjust to it rather than focus on it. But I definitely noticed that I am longing for things like my mom's attention a little bit more. So when I call my mom or my dad, I really want to speak to them rather than anyone else, which is very difficult in my family because my family is big. So when I call them, my mom passes me on to every family member for me to speak to them and everyone is excited and actually the two hours phone call is between 10 people and I really want to speak to my mom about one topic and I think for my parents it's also strange for them as it's the first grandchild that's so far away so they are not used to not being part of it at the very beginning and they are not sure how to how to go about that I, I don't think so they are just they know they are missing me but but it's it's hard to know what to do about that. Yeah, I think that we're super vulnerable when we give birth or if somebody dies. And so we kind of seek comfort. And naturally, you're going to seek comfort with your parents. So when they're missing, this is a very tricky time. So um, I think if you don't have your immediate family, it's you have to be, not you in particular, but we all have to be super careful about taking good care of ourselves because, it's yeah, it could get really tricky very fast if you don't have that. I know that for me it's more difficult uh, because I like I want you know I see pictures and I uh, I see videos but it's not quite the same I want to go and meet Jonah in person so like I feel I'm jealous of everybody including Sapir who already met him <laughs> and I'm like angry I'm like damn it those people <laughs> they all get to meet him first um, so yeah it's it's definitely uh, more difficult I think yeah in in a close relationship if something big like that happens you just want to be there you know kind of close to somebody yeah I think you're very right and I think Jonah has been um, yeah has proven to be very popular so far and uh, quite a few people said that they are jealous of other people seeing him people who actually have seen him i just hope they stick around and they're gonna be turned into legitimate babysitters <laughs> exactly that's what i was thinking about this podcast that uh, we've had quite a few people inquiring about the next episode uh, in your circle of friends and in my circle of friends and i'm thinking if, if you want another episode offer to babysit and we can we can make a deal there you go anybody out there just um message us adrian this is a big shout to you i know you're waiting for another episode when are you free for babysitting please
So in today's episode, we're talking to Safir. She explains to us what it means to her to come from a relatively small island, which is divided in two islands while living on one big island in Scotland. We try to explore some difficult feelings around being here while missing there. We talk about aunties that may never sit around our dining table and talk about grief that cannot be shared in the traditional way. We learn that there are no wrong or right answers when it comes to navigating here and there, not even when it comes to getting a tan or an ice cream cone. Okay, let's jump in. Safir, hello Agnieszka. We are speaking to Safir today. Hi, hello. How are you doing? I'm good, great. How are you? I am good. How are you, Agnieszka? I'm doing okay today. Hi, Safir. It's really nice to have you on the podcast with us. Yes, yeah, so Safir. We were wondering. We were wondering about your name with Agnieszka. It's a very unique name. We don't know anyone else with this name. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it? How do you spell it? How do you pronounce it? Yeah, it is spelled S A F I R. And I would usually spell it as Safir, um, but sometimes the emphasis, depending on where I'm living, people can emphasize different parts of it. So sometimes they will call me Safir, sometimes they call me Safir, sometimes they call me Sophia, sometimes they call me something completely unrelated. Uh, um, but it's usually some variation of that, <laughs> which I've, I've sort of like accepted now. It's a very <laughs> unique name. Is there any story to it? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Do you know? So it's it comes from the uh, it's it's a I think the, it originates it's an Arabic word, and it it sort of means the the gemstone the blue one usually it's not it's it's an unusual name I think even in Turkish and my parents sort of gave me that name partly because they were un- unprepared to having a female baby <laughs> they were expecting me to be a boy and I had a, a boy's name prepared for me. Um, but then when it, you know, transpired that they needed to have a girl's name ready, then I think for a few days I didn't have a name and they came up with this one. I really like it actually. Um, the, most of the time people do make a comment on it and I have to, you know, uh, I, I either tell them the, the story or, or, or they, they compliment. So it's really nice. Do you know anybody else with that same name? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know another person who's from back home who was born, I think, maybe in the same year with me, but I think maybe further down the line. And that makes a lot of sense because in Cyprus, like people know each other. And so it's very common for certain children, maybe born around the same area to end up with the same name. Oh, interesting. So maybe that's a good um, good moment to bring us where back home is. You mentioned Turkey, you mentioned Cyprus. If you can tell us a little bit more about where you're from. Yeah, so I'm from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And I am from the northern part of the island where we speak predominantly Turkish and the southern part speak Greek. I've been sort of living away on and off from back home since maybe 2007 and now currently kind of transitioning to move back there in a few months time. And where is where is here for you? Where is here for me? Here I'm currently in Dundee in Scotland. 
so you're in Scotland and British people often go to Cyprus for a holiday. Where where did they go? Do they go to the south, to the north? Um, they they do both. I think they they do they do you know they, they there are certain maybe destinations that they would choose maybe close to the seaside. Um, so they do a bit of both. I think. Uh, well, maybe you can tell us how many people live in Cyprus so we can get an idea. Um, it is an island, roughly. Is, is it, a... <laughs> it is. It is small. Is all I can tell you. It's the third biggest island in the Mediterranean. In terms of the population, I get asked this question a lot, and I usually draw a blank. <laughs> um, partly, I partly blame, uh, you know, the the you know sometimes the census is not really um, reflecting the number of people available. In terms of immigration, it's quite a mixed, po- you know, picture. But it is it is a fairly large island, I would say, with not too many people on it, where people know each other. Yeah, people people in the north, um, you know, they tend to, you know, uh, separate families. They tend to know of each other, and I think that sometimes contributes to quite a, a claustrophobic social circle where people know of what the other one is doing, and there is a lot of sometimes in my perspective there's sometimes quite a lot of gossip and 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 that creates its own sort of like social bubbles and i've never been to cyprus and before i i met you sophia i to be fair i didn't know about the northern and the southern division i really didn't Mm -hmm. have much of an idea and i know it's complicated now i know a little bit more but it seems like it's still way more complicated Mm -hmm than I could imagine. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So the, the, the Northern Ireland speaks Turkish, the Southern speaks Greek. Do mm-hmm. they like each other, these islands? <laughs> That's a really good question. And I think if you were to catch any other Cypriot, either from the North or the South, depending on their own sort of life experiences, their family's experiences, they could equally give you a very convincing but completely different answer. Um, so I feel like I need to caveat this somehow that the, the version I could say to you would be my own, but there are other realities that people really subscribe to and sometimes really passionately subscribe to. So there are totally different, you know, people identify differently from a nationality or an ethnicity point of view. And sometimes even like the perspectives that, you know, when we acknowledge the multi- multiplicity of the different narratives, still sometimes those more kind of minority groups get blanched out. So I'm sort of like caveating this majorly before I, I sort of go into that. Um, but essentially, you know, Cyprus wasn't always a divided island. It kind of had multiple communities of different languages on it for a long time. And then sort of maybe in the 1950s, sort of 50s, 1960s, there was more of a separation um, there was a kind of maybe a more nationalization based on those kind of um, languages, and there were two two wars or two you know periods of wars, kind of one in nineteen sixties and 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 a second one in nineteen seventies, and and in nineteen seventy four the island completely divided, with a, a United Nations border in between. So there's a green line, and now for for a very long time from the seventies onwards until two thousand and four. There was no passage for regular people from north to south and south to north and with the you know opening of the the gates in between in in through the um, border and with the joining of the republic of cyprus to the eu i think things changed a little bit in terms of how much contact the either side had with the with the other and at the moment whether they do like each other i think there are different pockets of people 
some people are really invested in the idea of a reunification of the island. There are other people who are quite strongly against it. There are various different ideas and not, not, there isn't a really unified one, one answer to that. So I think depending on what you believe is the best for the island and, and how you identify, I think people sort of have different ideas of what should be done. But essentially, from 1974 onwards, there was a, a permanent state of ceasefire. And, you know, I think after 1974 in the north for a very long time, the community that I belong to had a kind of quite a big sense of alienation because essentially we live in a country where no other country in the world officially recognizes. And that creates a lot of questions for in terms of your identity and your place in the world and, and how you see the world. Um, and maybe that is beginning to change as well. Maybe we're kind of coming to a time where in the north especially, maybe we're able to see, this is me being very optimistic, I think, at this stage, but that we, we sort of belong within a wider perspective. Um, and maybe there is more kind of overcoming those initial ideas about being completely separated off from the world. I think maybe we have more means of kind of going over those barriers these days. That's a very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's great. It's a very complicated situation, so <laughs> there's no one yeah. uh, sentence yeah. answer to it. This identity of being, you know, a person from an island, but also within the island, a very small community that's neither, you know, completely Turkish, and neither, you know, I think 100% you wouldn't identify as, you know, Cyprus as a whole. You're within that very small community. How does that identity feel to you that's just very, you know, narrow? Yeah, I think, I think it sort of, again, goes back to the idea of how strongly a person identifies in terms of their nationality. There would be some Cypriots, you, you might ask them their nationality and they might say, I'm Turkish full stop and I'm Greek full stop there are other people who would say I'm Cypriot full stop and then there are other people who say I'm a Turkish speaking or a Greek speaking Cypriot and and that's where I position myself um, because I think for example my my grandparents generation my, my grandma was kind of bilingual um, she could she could speak she could hear in maybe not write in Greek, I think, but she could, you know, people were living together, there was a lot of transaction and, and, and connection. But I think sort of my generation maybe lost that a bit with that kind of separation. And so I feel like the language is, is, a, is an important part of how we identify in emphasizing that sometimes things get lost in translation or sometimes that, you know, because usually what, what tends to happen is, you know, when people find out that I'm from Cyprus, if they are also uh, from Cyprus, they might kind of speak Greek to me or, or you know, and, and I would kind of have to say, oh, I'm, I'm actually from this part of the island, so I'm not quite, you know, understanding what you're saying. Um, and then, then switch, you know, swiftly switch to English and then kind of carry the conversation onward. So I feel like the language is an important part of it. But um, depending on who you ask, what they will tell you will likely be very different in terms of how strongly they identify with a certain nationality. And I think, you know, when I think about uh, Cyprus now, even just after having this chat, I'm already thinking in terms of Turkey, Greece, cultural background. Uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there are also two different religions, uh, the, the main religions between the north and, and the south. In the north, uh, the predominant sort of religion is, is Islam and and in the south is Greek Orthodox. I think throughout 
different communities, maybe the strength of those kind of religions and the, the impact it has might change. I think sometimes in the, in the north, within the communities that I grew up in, sometimes people sort of almost, you know, um, kind of, I didn't, I don't want to say pride themselves in, but kind of make a joke that, you know, Turkey speaking Cypriots, they aren't really that religious sometimes, but there may be the ones who are kind of more religious and practicing it more. Um, but it is, it is, it is also a big factor. To me, it's less about it being kind of being, you know, church against the mosque or anything like that. Maybe an element of that is because I, I spent a long, long, you know, portions of my life living in, in a country where, you know, the, the religion I grew up in isn't being widely practiced. So maybe I'm kind of more used to seeing or, or living in those circumstances or, or, you know, within, within the, um, kind of practice of other religions or going to churches, etc. It doesn't really, you know, impact me in the same way maybe it might others. But it's not something that I tend to think, it's not the first thing that kind of comes to my mind when I think of home or, or you know, what separates us or, or what keeps us, or what's the difference between us. Religion is usually not the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. I think it's quite easy to make a lot of assumptions about such a complicated country uh, from a foreigner's perspective, just because we don't know much. And it, it, it's not easy to conceptualize it as a tourist, really. And I wonder whether that's quite frustrating, that it feels that it's so difficult for people to know about your own country. Yeah, I think you go through different phases of it. When I first came to the UK at the age of 17 and kind of first being kind of more confronted with that question of who are you and you know where are you from where are you from is such a huge question for me like I, I couldn't give a simple answer and move on in two minutes I had to give a whole history lesson <laughs> and that doesn't really go down that well in parties you know when you're 17 you just started uni you know it, it, so sometimes you need to come up with very brief but what feels justified answers because I feel like I need to account for other people's perspectives in my answer I'm, I'm plagued by that idea <laughs> so I feel like I need to say something to capture the complexity of it but also to, to convey how I feel about it the the other thing also happens I think sometimes once you sort of get get across that question often enough sometimes you don't want to go into that sometimes you don't want to talk about it and then you just kind of avoid the question altogether if you can so so it, it sort of tips over towards different kind of answers depending on how much patience i feel i have uh what the situation calls for so you really need to sort of grow some sort of a flexible approach to it i think sounds a lot like gina's answer to me yeah, I wanted to ask if you guys ever uh, return the question to if like, for example, if somebody in the UK asks you where you're from, do you ever ask them back? Like, oh, where are you from? You know? Yeah, I do. I do sort of ask them whereabouts they're from or if they're a local or and, and because I want to, you know, but usually their answer is much more briefer than mine and, and people maybe don't have that much to explain about their hometown. Um, and so usually the questions kind of turn towards me. And sometimes, yeah, I'm, I'm not in the mood to explain things. Agnieszka, if I ask you about Poland, would the answer be, be complicated or, or, or simple? No, I, I get that question a lot. Yeah, so for me, it's quite simple. I, I usually have some fun, if, again, depending on my mood. If I feel like I can have that fun, I will ask them, could I give you a map clue? <laughs> Being in America. <laughs> and I 
have some fun with it, they usually end up somewhere either in Hungary or somewhere in Scandinavia. They, for some reason, don't recognize that there's this big country between Russia and Germany. So once we establish that, just like to even up, you know, the kind of the power play. That's what I like to do. And then I'll just say I'm from Poland. And then usually it will ring with most Americans. They'll either know somebody that's Polish already just because there's a huge community here. Or they'll know Pierogi's older, know one of the people that came here and contributed. So they'll know, you know, one of the difficult street names or bridges. Like we have a lot of Kostuszko stuff around the U.S. pronounced differently. But they'll be, um, and that's usually fine. I don't have to explain to them, you know, I am, my family came from Ukraine and, you know, we live in the western part of Poland. Sometimes they'll ask me about my hometown and I'll just tell them plainly I'm from Wrocław. It's in the western part. It used to be Germany. And that usually is it. Uh, I feel like Poland has had a complicated history. The other day, somebody asked me uh, about the last king of Poland or until which point Poland had a king. And I had a difficult time with that. I know that that was around the time when like Poland went off the map. We had a king, but I'm like, where was the king? Where they were just dividing the country. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's it's only from but yeah, <laughs> where I'm like, where is the king? You know, they're taking his <laughs> country away. <laughs> But it's never, yeah, it's never as complicated. And that's why, yeah, that's why, you know, Cyprus, I feel is one of the, uh, you know, in that region, there's definitely more countries like that. Um, It's a very complicated history and an ongoing uh, history that's very fresh. I feel it's very easy to generalize about Poland. We are largely white. We are largely Catholic. We are sort of hospitable and hostile at the same time. We speak with one accent. We don't have many accents or some dialects, but generally we speak with one accent. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's Poland. Whereas I feel guilty generalizing about other countries. And, you know, I think that, sorry, that, that sort of simplicity of, you know, having just a very simple answer to, you know, where you're from or what your nationality is, is just such a foreign concept, I think, for a lot of people who, who experience kind of such complex situations in terms of their history and and sort of geography um and 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 i think that that makes it sometimes really hard i sometimes think oh i wish you know there was a really kind of quick answer but sometimes also it, you can also see how there, there's a, a you know a sense of richness to it as well that i feel like i need to explain things to people for them to understand so that you know i i feel like i'm doing justice to to the the complexity of it which is, you know, I, I don't claim that I, I, I do a good job about it, but I try. <laughs> I want to go back to the island um, and the two parts. I feel like there's usually when there's two communities and there's a, a rec- more recent civil conflict, there's usually the also that idea or the concept of power play. So one seems to be, you know, more accepted, for example, by the Western powers and the Western world. Is there anything similar going on in Cyprus where either Greece or Turkey, um, you know, feel like they are kind of better or more powerful and the other one is the inferior part? I think that that's such a complex question um, because before the island was separated into north and south, there, there were some international agreements where Turkey and Greece became guarantors alongside Britain. So there's a whole whole kind of complex web of power play there in terms of their influences, but also there's a lot of influence that's kind of maybe less formal as well through the culture. I think, 
I, I can't really speak for the, you know, in terms of the, the southern parts of the island because I've, I've not lived there. I don't really know what it feels like. But in the north, there's a sense of a different culture that I identify with in terms of being a Turkish-speaking Cypriot and, and our practices being different. So even though there's that, that kind of shared language between us and Turkey, and, and Turkey being a really large and complex country in itself, so there isn't that kind of homogeneous, um, you know, well, there, there's the, the national identity, but I always kind of think of it as the, the diversity that it involves as well. Um, and and there is a, a very significant power dynamic between the northern part of the island and Turkey as well. That that sort of again different people would give you very different answers for this. But you know my perspective would be that there is a sense of kind of by this point forced nationalistic kinshipness of, of you know being Turkish, which some people don't really identify with. But again, other people might give you a totally different answer for this. Do you ever see some um, search for uh, just unique elements of culture that are people try to elevate in order to separate themselves from both Turkey and the southern part of Cyprus? Do you ever see that in the north? Like you're trying to find, you know, either something that's special, only unique to that part of the world that's going to separate you from anybody else to, to kind of, you know, validate your independence? Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting question um, because... Sometimes the things that I feel we want to be proud of, for example, our dialect being slightly different than the ones spoken around Turkey, and again, Turkey has its own kind of variations within the language, um, sometimes that being a really uh, a point of pride, but sometimes also within within Turkish media or mainstream media, that being used as a point of ridicule sometimes. So it's such a dichotomy that the thing that we say, oh, this separates us, we speak differently, we, we, we use different words that is not really shared with the you know mainland Turkey, that's more kind of shared part of the culture with the rest of the island. We can take pride in that, but that can also be used as a point of humor or ridicule. Um, but then it's such a complex geography in that a lot of our cultural you know practices might be very similar i wouldn't be able to identify one thing that sort of separates us completely in that way and going with that theme of being special a little bit if you were to tell me if i was to go on holiday to cyprus and you were mm -hmm. to convince me to go to the north rather than the south why how how would you do that tell me tell, I, I tell me to go to the north <laughs> oh you wouldn't i wouldn't know <laughs> I just tell you, oh yeah, go go have a go have a nice time, whichever side. I would tell you that they're not maybe too different from each other in terms of like what you might see potentially. Some people might agree disagree with that, but I which I part will really... give me a better tan? A better tan. <laughs> which part does better ice cream? I think you have you have equal propensity for going completely red on either side. No problems there. I could perhaps sort of direct you to more if, if you were a, a, a kind of a person who would really want to have a party, I would maybe point you to different cities, but that would not really be in my mind a differentiation between the north and the south. I wouldn't say, oh, you must come to North Weir, but I would, yeah, that wouldn't even cross my mind. And I would, you know, I would hope that you go around and, and have a look of the both and have a taste of the both and make your own decisions about you know life on either side because yeah it's, it's less about choice but more about exposure to all aspects of the island perhaps 
And I wanted to ask you when you came, you said you were 17 when you came to the UK. That's super young. Um, and you're coming from one island to the other, but I imagine they are quite different. How did that feel for you? And what was the first, do you remember your first thoughts or feelings? I loved it. <laughs> um, I was very, I was very keen to leave home and I, and that was kind of sort of maintained by an idea of, of an, a sense of an adventure. I think I, I was really eager to sort of fly off the nest and, and, and see, see a different thing about the world and see what I would make with it. While, you know, the UK is very sort of big and different compared to Cyprus, I think the place I went to in North Wales was very small and very well protected. So even though I was 17, and now looking back, I think, oh, that was such an early, early age to be going away, like moving away. Um, at the time, I didn't think that. At the time, I was really looking forward to it, was very keen for it. I think it really helped that I stayed in a very small town. I didn't feel overwhelmed. Sometimes I was even bored, but I could go around and, and you know, um, see the sights and, and go to different cities. It didn't really bother me. But I think maybe the experience may be very different if I had moved to a really large city like London. And I know some people do that with no problem from my generation who have done it and they were absolutely fine. But I think I, I would have probably found it a bit overwhelming, perhaps. And was there anything similar for you in terms of moving from one island to another island? Any similarities in terms of communities that live on, on an island? Not really. I mean, the UK feels so big <laughs> compared to Cyprus sometimes. I think I forget it's an island. It probably didn't cross my mind at the time that, that because it's an island, there are similarities. Karina, do you ever get a, a feeling that you are living on an island, living in the UK? Because I wonder, because as yeah, Safir mentioned, it's, they're so big and also so central to kind of, you know, in terms of politically, um, also economically, it's, you know, does it feel like an island to you ever? I think it feels a little strange because Poland borders with so many countries. We have at least one, two, three, four, five, six, at least six countries we are bordering with. Uh, and they are quite culturally quite different from us as well, in a way similar but also different you know you're in a different country um and the uk doesn't have it it's like to me it's you, you cannot drive anywhere if you if you wanted to drive to a, to a foreign country you can't you can't really drive you, well you can go through the channel and go to france but 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 again you have to go through the sea um and i think people from here sometimes when drive they drive to england they feel like they're driving to this foreign world but they're speaking the same language people look the same um so that that's a bit bizarre and i think there's something there about mentality as well that it does feel that we are the central bit because there's no one around us whereas even though poland on the map map wise we are in the very central of uh, center of europe we are the middle europe literally and it doesn't feel like the middle of, of europe it just feels like one of the countries in Europe. No, actually, we feel like the periphery of Europe, probably, or we have felt. Yeah. Maybe people yeah. younger than us feel differently because they grew up in the European Union with access to um, all countries, both West and East. But for us, we didn't really look East. We, everybody was just looking West. So it's, it's a similar kind of you know feeling of periphery that I feel people from Cyprus or even talking to people from Iceland they also an island very small and they also feel like they're just far away from everything which i think in the uk people don't really feel like they're in the periphery although geographically they could be 
So, Safir, when you were leaving Cyprus for the UK, um, why did you want to leave? Did you have a vision what's going to happen? I think at the time I didn't. I, I think at the time I was just very young and eager and curious. Um, and I stayed in the UK, I think, until I was about 21. So there was like uh, that four-year period where I stayed in the UK as a student. And then after that, I moved back home for two years. At the time, I didn't really feel like that was a decision I made very consciously. I know that there was a sense of not feeling like I'm quite done in the UK yet. So I did, I did go back home for, for that two-year period. And I, I was really keen to come back again and, and I tried really hard to be able to do that because I think it was at that point when I had a bit more of a vision of, of the you know what I wanted to do more in the UK, which wasn't really apparent to me when I was about to leave it the first time around. So when I did manage to come back after two years, I sort of remember my plane journey from home. And, and even though I really desperately wanted to come back to the UK, it was really... It, it had a, a finality to it. I, I felt like I would never go back home again. And I remember feeling very sad on the plane. And, and normally when I go to a new place, because I was moving to a new city, I was moving to the southern part of Wales, uh, normally when I go somewhere new, the, the first thing I want to do is go and explore and see what's around. And on that occasion, I didn't do any of that. I actually stayed in my room for three days. I drank tea and ate the biscuits that my granny made me pack. <laughs> um, so, and, and it was kind of associated with kind of having left home and expecting not to be back for good, which is really funny to be thinking of it now at, at a point where I'm preparing to go back home, potentially for good. Um, and, and it was a really strange transition time. I think I, I knew I wanted to do things, I wanted to pursue things um, and I didn't really know whether I'd be able to do them uh, and whether I would be able to find my way back home or want to go back home. Uh, so that kind of big unknown I think at the time really messed up with my head for those few days and then I sort of kind of got on with it eventually. But I, yeah, I remember feeling really, really sad on that journey. So what changed between that first and second time? What was in your head? Is, is it because you had a very particular plan? What was even the plan? Uh, well, I think the plan was just sort of studying further. And to be able to study further, I needed to gain the right work experience. And I was sort of, I think it, it, it wouldn't be unfair to say that I think from since I was 17, I constantly moved around. Uh, either for uni, uni or other kind of degrees or work purposes. There was at one point I was changing cities every year, uh, which is quite a lot to actually get your head around. Maybe you don't experience it while you're going through it. You don't always see the effect it has on you. But looking back now, I'm thinking, oh gosh, I didn't really sit still for a minute, did I? And so I think it was that you know, the, the, the desire to, to want to achieve something and, and kind of pursuing that was kind of it, what kept me going. Sounds like ambition kept you moving. Yeah, I think, I think so, which it didn't really feel like at the time. It didn't really feel like at the time because I don't know what was next. I didn't know what was around the corner. It really felt like, you know, the second time I came back, there were a few years 
until I managed to kind of get myself back to Scotland, I feel like there were a lot of things that if I was to make really different decisions, my life would have turned out completely different. And I sometimes kind of like to think back and, you know, wonder, you know, how, how I would be, what kind of a person I would be if I'd made those because I, I, I felt like I was at a crossroads pretty much once every year. <laughs> and I could either kind of continue with what I had in mind, knowing that it may require more moving or more feeling unsettled, or I could have done something different and, and have a maybe more settled life or, or make a decision. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stay in this city, do this job and not move again. At various points when I made decisions to move, I went there with the intention, okay, I'm not moving again, <laughs> and then I would. <laughs> so I think the, the last time where I kind of spent the longest in a city was when I lived in Edinburgh the second time around. So I managed to stay there for five years, which is great for me. <laughs> do you remember some of those things that you knew that you couldn't do in Cyprus when you were leaving? Yeah, I think the sort of education path I was pursuing, because I'd already kind of started my degree process in the UK, it made more sense for me to carry on within the UK. Um, I could have made different choices at that time and say, okay, I'm gonna, for further training, I'm gonna go to maybe Turkey or a different country. But I felt like I wasn't quite done in the UK. And I think, you know, kind of going back to that question that, that you had, Aga, about, you know, what's really different between the first time and the second time of leaving the UK. I think at this point in time, it really feels like it's my decision that I am really doing it willingly and wanting it wanting to do it rather than kind of feeling like I'm being sort of whipped up by a force that's out with my control I feel like I've made a decision said okay this is what I want to do therefore I'm doing it I think that that kind of sense of control is probably the the only difference that I can think but it's not really been a very quick decision I feel like it's been in the making for a very long time perhaps maybe going back to when I moved to Edinburgh the second time around, so this is about 2015, I just moved into a, a job that I was really excited about. I had gone back to a city which I really, really loved, um, and I had kind of returned there as a maybe more of a mature adult. Um, so in expectation of things being perhaps different, but still I remember, you know, coming across, I think I was, I had just moved into a new house, which was a really nice house. There were, there was a, an extra dining chair with a lot of chairs around it, like a dining table in the corner, which is really unusual for my rental experiences. You know, the houses I previously rented didn't come with big tables with big chairs. And, uh, Around that time, I was sort of getting into a lot of spoken word poetry and English literature. And I remember reading a, a poem uh, from a poet called, I think, Rachel McCrum. She had a poem about houses and home and residency. I think that was the, the theme, the theme of the poem, because she was a, a BBC, you know, resident in Poet in Residence. On that poem, there was a line. So she, she kind of talked about, you know, who wants, who wants houses, you know, who wants a home? We do. And then would give a reason why, you know, what you should do then and how it's really difficult to have a home ownership in this day and age, in, in our generation. And then she would go on and talk about, there was a really specific line about when she would describe the houses that, you know, would have really fine china and the houses that she grew up in. 
and there would be lots of chairs and, and these chairs would be for, for old aunts. And then she would say, oh, we thought we would grow up in these houses. And, and that line really haunted me that there would be these chairs and they would be for our aunts or our old aunts. And, and there I was, you know, sitting there and thinking, okay, I'm in this dining table. <laughs> I don't have all of my old aunts to, to come, you know, to have them here. And I remember being so hung up on that poem, I'd phoned one of my close friends who's known me for years. She's known me probably from when I was 12 or 13. She also lives in the UK, funny enough. And uh, I was telling her, look, I have all these chairs, but nobody to sit on. <laughs> and she was trying to tell me, oh, you know, you're just, you just moved to a new house. Like any good friend, she was trying to reassure me that there would be people on those chairs. But I think what I was trying to get at, there was a kind of deeper sense of nostalgia, like a childhood uh, nostalgia that I would not be able to capture because it wasn't about new people sitting on those chairs. It was about my auntie sitting on those chairs. And, and, and I grew up in houses where you would always need extra chairs for people, for guests. And and, and I, I just suddenly had the vision of there is no way I would be able to transport all of my family all at once at any time, at any time point. That's never going to happen. And I think that really sort of affected me. It's something that maybe I sort of carried along with me since then. And with the kind of more recent, the, the, the COVID and, you know, I think we, we lost my granny last year. That also had a big impact in terms of influencing, okay, where do I feel like I want to be right now? What what makes most sense? I think that's the biggest difference compared to the last time when I made the decision to move home is that I feel like there's a bigger sense of purpose and meaning this time. Again, that's a very long-winded way of explaining that. <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful answer. I hope that when you go back to Cyprus, Safir, I wish you a very big dining table and a lot of chairs. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But just not enough. A lot of chairs, but not enough. So you always look for one more. Yes, yes, yes. So right now you're already decided going back for the second time. And as coming in was different between the first and second time, you said that going back is different. First time was kind of not your decision. This time it is very much your decision. Is it because there is a different sense of community that... Um, you just wouldn't be able to build in the UK specifically because you come from such a tight community in Cyprus. Do you feel like it's somehow easier for people that come from larger cultures or that just have more, maybe not family members, but people that can kind of help them recreate that atmosphere because they share the same, you know, types of food, the same type of songs. You can kind of fill in that table, maybe not with your biological aunts, but kind of, you know, other aunts that have gone through the same holidays with you, same song, same bread. You don't have to explain to them anything. Do you feel like that may have anything to do with that? I think it's, it's really interesting you say that because in terms of the friendships that I sort of cultivated over the years in the UK, I, I tend to gravitate towards cultures where there was that big shared sense of togetherness um, and, and those are the kinds of people that I get along the best with and I, I think I feel like I've been really lucky enough to be around big tables and sharing sharing that with others but in terms of whether whether the connection is is home I think it doesn't feel homely in that way and I'm really mindful that there there might be a whole lot of kind of romanticizing going on in my head that maybe when I do go home there's not because I think this is what happens when you live away from some place the time doesn't really stop the place that you left carries on changing the people there change as well and you feel like there I think I, what I feel is there's a sense of 
grief about what I'm missing out on back home. You know, what's what's up there when I'm not there? And and, and things happening when I'm not there and I want to be there. Um, so when I think of being back home, there's every possibility that I, the, the, the kind of sense of no- nostalgia that I have in my mind is, is not there anymore or, or people's life circumstances have changed or maybe people have fallen out so it isn't possible to bring them around in that way anymore. But again, sort of going on with the same theme of objects <laughs> being the primary reason of my decision making uh, since the passing of my grandma there's been you know she has this most fantastic sewing machine and I would love to kind of have it as, as, a, as, a, as a possession in terms of kind of it being passed on to me as the only member of the community in, in our family to who sews still and then I was kind of chatting to a friend about it and, and, and he was saying oh you know you can you can bring it over to the UK that's no problem and this sort of feels the the it, it really scares me in terms of when I'm about to buy and make a big purchase for a furniture or or, or or buy something that sort of hints a little bit more idea of commitment that I'm that I'm ready to um, because it, it just get, gives such a sense of finality and I couldn't really imagine this sewing machine out with its own context it didn't make sense in my mind to have it elsewhere than already is and just for our audience, if you're looking for homemade baby clothes, Safia is the person to go to. But be prepared to pay a lot of money because these are very special clothes. And also posted so, from yeah. Cyprus. Expensive. Thank you for the ad, Carolina. <laughs> no problem. I'm also thinking, so this, this weekend, my family is all together. They are all spending a weekend together. So quite a lot of them, two, four, five, maybe seven, eight people around one table. And while I was thinking about that on Friday, that I'm not there and how I'm missing out, my mom texted me at the same time saying, I'm so happy you're not here. We've just been arguing all the time. <laughs> yes, I think that's a very real thing to, to bear in mind. Yes, absolutely. What did you tell her? Nothing. I asked why they were arguing, but the, the reality of my own weekend was that I actually didn't have much time to speak to her, which, which is, again, adds another layer. Because there's something important and important enough for me for her to tell me. But actually, because you have your own life, you need to find the space and the time to pay attention to it. What I've actually done, we were in a restaurant when she texted me and it was a very emotional argument from the way I understood it. And I went to the toilet to reply to her because I felt that she needed that reply. But I also didn't want to be rude and text at the table. And, and that's sometimes the reality of being an immigrant. That actually some things are urgent and they are happening just at that minute. And you either miss out on them or you, yeah, you somehow find a way to, to be with that. And I don't know if this is maybe more specific to the culture that I grew up in, but there is a lot of... No, no, we, they, there's an, there, there, there are arguments, but sometimes there's a lot of like protective not sharing. Like sometimes people might skip out on details of things for the fear of worrying you or they think, oh, I don't need to think about these things. Everything is peachy and rosy at home. And then suddenly, like, I don't know, months down the line, you find out that there was this whole big thing that happened and you had zero clue about. And and that I think that changes the nature of maybe finding out things later than when they happen. So it doesn't really give you the sense of things happening in that moment so that you can really share it. It seems like your mom has it on, on spot, though. <laughs> that rings a bell because when I speak to my mom and my dad at the same time, my mom shares and my dad tells her off for sharing. <laughs> so he actually says, stop sharing. She doesn't need that. It's her weekend. Yeah, protective non-sharing. I love that phrase. Definitely helps you with building up that nostalgia. I wonder if it's like subconsciously they do that so you actually can 
only think of stuff that you miss and not ever think about stuff that you don't want to deal with. Or to get you curious, what else is happening behind the doors that yeah, you don't know about? Absolutely. Sometimes I think, oh, you know, it's really great that everything is fantastic, but how realistic is this? That you know, something has to give. And so when you stop and think about that, then then you feel like you're missing out on certain important things. And I would much rather be bothered about those things than not know that they've happened at all. I think it's also that when you mentioned your grandmother passing away, I think the grieving aspect of it is very hard for anybody living abroad. And so I witnessed it firsthand with my uncle when he was here and his mother died. I think it would have been completely different for him if he was there. But because he was not there with his family that, you know, I have not personally experienced it yet. But all of my immigrant friends were kind of all bracing for those moments where we have very close people, you know, that are close to us passing away and we're not able to share the grief with our family. So that's something that I feel like it's a super important aspect of our immigrant life. Absolutely. I think it was such an odd time. I think my, my granny's passing wasn't a surprise. I, I knew it was coming. I knew it was happening. And I'd seen her in, in January last year and I knew she wasn't, you know, gonna get better. And still there is something about missing that part where you know from when i had you know i'd seen her at her at her home and then her being hospitalized and i think she was in hospital for about three four last three four weeks of her life even even when you sort of expect you know that sense of sadness and grief is you know just around the corner or you know it's gonna happen at some point and when you do finally find out you know people tell you yes we lost your gran and 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 you feel really sad but I found that something was really missing in my grief processing. It felt like, yeah, I can, I can process all these emotions on my own, but I need to see other people cry too. There's, there was something really interpersonal that was missing there. I need to see other people reacting in the same way and processing their grief because that speaks to the shared meaning this person had in all of our lives. So not just my grand, but she was other people's grand or other people's mom. So it, it, it sort of, I felt like there was a part of the, that grief process that didn't, it couldn't really happen. Um, and I couldn't really go home and soon after sort of COVID hit and, and nobody could go anywhere. Um, and I feel like I sort of parked part of my grief and probably that's going to continue when I go home, when I go back to her house or when I go back and, and look at her belongings. So, and, and that will probably be a different kind of a grief, a more maybe delayed sort of grief. But I, I remember thinking, yeah, I can, I can do all this crying on my own as much as I want to, but it still doesn't feel like this is this is giving me the relief I'm needing. I need to see and speak to other people about it. When, when my grand died, I was, I was at work and I was given five days of compassionate leave, which is a, a lot of time to, uh, to, to get. Usually you get a one day or, or so, but because I was traveling and because my boss was nice, I didn't make it for the day when she died, but partially I didn't make it because my mom told me not to book tickets soon enough because she thought it would be a waste. And she said, use it as an opportunity to meet with us after your grand passes away. So I, when I flew, it was few days after. And I think this was drill in my head that you're here to meet with your family and it's a happy time. And this is what your grand's passing gave to you. Um, and there would be, yeah, it was somehow more beneficial for me to be there two days after rather than two days before. Um, so it, it kind of also depends on what other people tell you about about this about the situation. Otherwise, you feel 
yeah, you feel quite guilty that you're not there. I felt quite guilty that I wasn't there. It sounds like your mom made the call for you. <laughs> she did. She, she very much did that morning. I remember that. Thank you, mom. Thank you, my very wise mom. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's something heartbreaking also about it. Uh, so we, we are missing... We are missing all these people there who are there but not here. But now thinking about Safir leaving and, and I'm speaking on behalf, I guess, of Gina and my, and my own, my own behalf, uh, that we will be missing you. And it's, it's, it's again, I think the nostalgia will kick in um, because we will be missing you. Gina, I hope you agree. Hi, Gina. <laughs> Hi, Gina. <laughs> I, think, I think what you're saying, I think what you're touching there is, is really important because you, you keep making connections wherever you are. And, and in, a, in a perfect setting, I wouldn't want to be leaving behind anybody either. This is probably where it kind of goes back to it being more political. But I know economically there is no way that my family or any part of my family could afford to come and visit me at the frequency and rate I would want them to. There's, there's no way. The, the exchange rates is against us. <laughs> um, and, and I could, you know, maybe go back and come back for brief periods of time. Sustained it for some time, but clearly I'm at a point where I'm thinking, okay, that isn't really what I'm after anymore. But then I'm also thinking, this is where I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving behind such, such really valued relationships that I sort of wonder how it will be going forward. So there's there's missing people on either situation. Um, so I, I do expect that you choose to come to the northern part. For your next vacation, <laughs> Carolina. You would have to sell it to me first, Sophia. <laughs> you didn't do a very good job with that. That's okay. You know, if you come to the south, I'll come and meet you there. I, I have total respect to your choices as a tourist, if you prefer. <laughs> the southern part, if the sun is shinier there, that's absolutely fine. I'll come and meet you there. <laughs> uh, you I mentioned when, um, when we asked you about some special pieces of culture from back home, um, you mentioned this bread. Can you tell us how to pronounce it and, and what that bread is about? Zaytinli. Yes, yes, Zaytinli. Actually, Karina, you now know what that bread is because that's what I made last week. Uh, so it is a, a bread that has uh, olives and sometimes halloumi which is a Cypriot cheese and some mints, dried mints or fresh mints and it's very nice um, and it's a very, at one point I think when I came back to the UK, it's the second time around, I would be making this pretty much on an everyday, every week sort of basis because it, it has such a, it's a really big comfort food for me. I can confirm it was very delicious. Is this a, an everyday um, type of bread for you or is it a more of a holiday bread? Uh, no, it can be. It can be quite everyday. Uh, it's not as attached to any kind of special occasion. You can just have it anytime you want, every day. <laughs> have you ever seen it sold in the UK anywhere? Or did you always have to make it yourself to, in order to eat it? Uh, no, I think m more recently you can sort of find certain supermarket brands making olive bread. It's not the same thing if you ask me. It, it's sort of, if you have a really big craving and you can't be bothered to make it, then I think it will do the trick. But uh, yeah, I think I'd prefer to make it any day. Where is your recipe from? A mixture of what I've seen my mum do. Um, and we also have a, a book for Cypriot recipes that was uh, created as a project, um, like a cultural project that sort of has both English and Turkish translations. Of, of all the recipes so I sometimes look at that when I need a bit of a clue or a reminder it's uh, if once you kind of know 
you can kind of throw it together and, and make it quite easily. So you can do it without a recipe too, once you get the idea. Should we move on to rapid fire? Well, Safia is one of our main uh, fans in terms of our podcast. So I think she's quite familiar with the rapid fire questions. Maybe we should change them. Damn it, we have to change them up. <laughs> she probably, yeah. I didn't really prepared. know that you were asking the same questions every time. I would have prepared otherwise. <laughs> That's the surprise. That's the change. That there is no change. Okay, I'll start. Safir, culture or nature? Culture. What do you feel when you're around people from there when you're here? Or you're on the phone with your friend from Cyprus? What do you feel? Uh Uh-huh. It depends. Oh, this is meant to be rapid fire and I'm thinking it through, aren't I? Um, I think a comfort, comfort is probably what I feel the most. Um, Table for two or a big party? Big party. The worst moment from here? I had a few. (laughs) I can't choose. (laughs) The first one that you remembered. I think um, sort of I remember um, I'd gone for a job interview and I didn't get it. Um, And that was sort of before I'd moved up to Scotland. So this was when I was feeling kind of quite all over the place. Um, And I remember kind of thinking, you know, what do I do? Do I carry on? Do I persevere? And, and other people, family and friends, trying to convince me otherwise, you know, maybe this isn't working out, maybe you need to rethink your options. <laughs> um, so I think probably after that kind of job interview, I'd feel, I felt really kind of bummed out. And the other probably is probably the Brexit referendum. That's another contender for the worst. What about the best moment from here? Oh, the, the, there's so many. <laughs> um, the, best, the best moment was probably when I got on the training. When I, when I felt like what I was kind of working towards sort of paid off. Um, because I remember I texted one of my work colleagues and then I think I phoned my mum. And then I think all of our family learned about it in the next <laughs> 30 seconds, everybody knew. Um, so I think that's probably one of the best ones. Well, Sophia, thank you so much. Yeah, just just before we finish, I really would like to know where to go on holiday in Cyprus. Okay. I mean, we didn't get an answer, a village, a town, anything. Sophia, where should I fly? Where should you fly? Or I swim. feel like you should fly to. You can start in the south. You can. We can. We can have like a round trip, right? So you can maybe fly to. If you're flying from Edinburgh, you'd have to fly to Paphos. Yes, the direct flight. There used to be before COVID, and you can have parties there. You can go to Ayanapa. You can go to have the beach experience that you're after. And then once you are done with your tanning, you can carry on and through the mountains, maybe cooler climbs, um, you, can, you can make your way through to the north and I could meet you in the capital, which is in the center of the island. And then I could take you around for a, another tour around the north. How's that? I'm satisfied with this answer. Okay, I'm glad. Thank you so much, Safir, for, for joining us and for sharing uh, absolutely fascinating stories and, um, yeah, and, and this complicated, not only, I feel, situation around the country that you're from, but also your journey to where you are right now. And hopefully there will be a follow-up to that. And if you ask me, I'd like to do a, a part two with Safir in, in a year or so to see how those expectations played out for you. Yes, yes, I think that's a very good idea. I would love to have a, be a, a comeback guest. Thank you, Safir. I agree with everything. Yes. I'd love to chat again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. 
We'd love to hear how you connect with the stories of our guests and about your here and there experience. You can get in touch with us via email. It's hello at hereandtherepodcast.com. You can also share, comment, and follow us on your favorite social media platform. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Here and There Podcast. Find all of our episodes and links to our social media and streaming platforms on our website, hereandtherepodcast.com. Thanks, Yano, for putting us online. Clarence Boddicker for the Here and There tune and Kieran for the beautiful graphic. Till next time, friends. Bye-bye.